over the last uh, year, I think, I've been uh, visiting and doing a couple of sermons here and there, and I've done um, why do mission and how to do mission, and today is the who should do mission. And I want to start with a very practical thought experiment. What will you do when aliens arrive here on Earth? What will you do? Everything will change on that day. Now, you may believe in aliens, you may not believe in aliens. Um, there's been a lot of aliens in the news, a couple of months ago especially. But imagine what a big deal that would be. That would be something important to get right. If we made contact with aliens, I've seen enough Hollywood films to know that you want to get this right. You don't want to have a bad relationship with an alien species that's advanced enough to arrive here on our little patch of, of dirt here. So imagine aliens have arrived. Now, we've got to have some way of communicating between the aliens and the governments of our planet. Who are you going to choose to be that go-between? Who is going to be the person to talk to the aliens and represent the aliens to our governments and our governments to our aliens? Just have a think about who you might choose. Now, did you choose somebody here in this room, somebody here that you think would be really, really good? Maybe they have um, a lot of intelligence, a lot of stature, a lot of political power, perhaps. Do you think anybody here chose you? Would anyone have chosen? Maybe you chose yourself because you'd like to be that person. Maybe. So why, why not you? Why would it not be you to be the person, to be the witness to the most profound event in human history? Aliens arriving on this earth, confirming that we're not alone in this universe. Why wouldn't you be the chosen witness? Do you think that perhaps it should be someone, like I mentioned, someone super smart, someone super powerful, member of the elite perhaps? Or maybe you think, well, no one would believe me. No one would believe that I had the authority to actually be talking on behalf of the aliens or talking on behalf of the governments. Well, let's start with the first problem there. Why would you be, chose, be chosen as a witness? And I want to look first at a very strikingly similar event in the Bible. Matthew 28, the most important Thing in world history ever has happened, and now we have witnesses going forth to announce this news. I'll just read the first couple of verses there again. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We have a chosen witness. It's Mary and Mary, the two Marys. Now, Mary and Mary were not the ideal choice of witness by the standards of the time. They were not who you would go to and say, this is the most high-profile, powerful, uh, highly educated person, the most trustworthy person to be a reliable witness. In fact, in that place, in that time, women's testimony was not even admissible in court. These Marys likely had no education. Beyond their influence within the disciples, they probably had no authority. So the first readers of this text would have been completely gobsmacked. But actually, Matthew is doing something deliberate. He's smacking our gobs deliberately here because he's doubling down. He doesn't just include one commissioning for the Marys. He does it twice. Look back. Uh, First, we have the angel said to the women, go tell his disciples. That's verses 5 and 7. And then later, Jesus met them in verse 9. And in verse 10, says, go and tell my brothers. So Matthew isn't letting us just skate by the fact that these two women have been chosen deliberately. There's two commissionings of these women here to be the witnesses to the risen Jesus. In fact, it's precisely the fact that the Marys had no social power that made them the ideal choice for witnesses in Jesus' eyes as reported by Matthew. I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, Dr. Alice M. Stewart uh, died in 2002 at the age of 95, and she is responsible for saving the lives of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of babies. You see, when x-rays were first invented, They were such an exciting, novel new technology that you could go down to your local arcade, you could put a coin in a machine and get an x-ray of your hand, right? Just remember to take your ring off first. Any doctors in the room will know what I'm talking about there. And it was common at the time to x-ray pregnant women to determine the position of the baby. But it was Dr. Stewart who first noticed in the 1950s that mothers who got x-rays were twice as likely to have children with cancer. She raised the alarm, but she was silenced for a number of reasons. Partly because she was a woman scientist, she was a minority, but perhaps the main problem was that the elite of her um, colleagues didn't like the idea of having caused these deaths. It was their egos. She had seen the crisis, but she was ignored because of this inconvenient truth. But she didn't give up. After advocating for further research for 20 years, she finally saw her results vindicated and the practice was stopped. And many, many lives were saved as a result. But here's where it becomes really an interesting comparison with the choice of the two Marys. In a 1995 interview, she described her problems with financing of studies. If I had been a man, I would never have stood it. I would have gone, she said. 
the prospects were too bad, the pay was too low. But being a woman, I didn't have all that number of choices anyway. Isn't that amazing? So she says it was precisely the thing that made it hard for her to be heard that gave her the gumption to keep going. She said that if she were a man, the attraction of prestige and money and career would have meant that she would have a harder time sticking with this lost cause. She would have abandoned it and done something less controversial, but it was precisely the fact that as a woman she faced so much discrimination and didn't see a bright future ahead of her anyway that she felt she could commit to this cause. So maybe it doesn't matter if you think that you'd be a good witness. Maybe don't let the things that you imagine would disqualify you stop you from witnessing. God chooses who he will choose to be a witness of the good news. If you feel underqualified and uncomfortable and weak and generally a poor choice, then remember that God may have chosen you to be a witness for that exact reason. God chose the Marys to be the first witnesses, not the religious elite. In fact, the next passage we'll look at shows exactly why God didn't choose the religious elite as his first witnesses. Have a look at the next verses, starting at 11. I'll read it out. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So this is a very sort of, I realized on rereading this, this is actually quite a funny moment. This is a little bit of irony or comedy here. Imagine if you were in a courtroom and you heard someone testifying to something that had happened while they were asleep. I mean, that's just not going to be admissible, is it? I was asleep and then this person did this while I was asleep. Well, how do you know you were asleep? That's crazy. Now, these are the sort of people that if Matthew were going to make up this story, he would have chosen to be his witnesses. These are the religious elite, the most important people in the community. And at the very least, if he hadn't chosen them, he would have chosen someone like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, someone with stature, someone with some clout. Somebody, at the very least, with Bible knowledge, with theology, but God chose not to use them. And look, look at their dishonesty. They have no excuse. The elders and the chief priests have heard a witness testimony. This is amazing. They, have, they are some of the few people on the planet at this time who know for sure that something amazing and supernatural has happened. And even with that information, they willfully decide to cover it up. Like the doctors who were comfortable with the status quo with x-rays and didn't want change, the elite here have decided to cover up the truth to maintain their power. 
There's also another important lesson here. Matthew is turning the tables on the expectations of the time rather than appearing to the widely respected religious elite and using that as a platform to grow his kingdom, he's showing their corruption and instead the message of victory is being spread by two humble and joyful women. And we see in Matthew 20 verse 16, a little preview of this. Jesus says, in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. What an amazing revolution. But it's a terrifying thought to anyone who currently occupies that first position, the top position in the society. And being in the top position in the society is therefore a good motivation to suppress that inversion of top and bottom. I'll give you an example of this. In 1981, Her Majesty the Queen, we'll go to the next slide, visited her subjects in New Zealand and was arriving in the city of Dunedin. Little did she know that a disturbed 17-year-old white supremacist called Christopher Lewis had taken a 22 caliber rifle to a nearby building and had made a sniper's nest in a toilet cubicle on the fifth floor. Now, is anyone here hearing this story for the very first time? Yeah, I was completely shocked to hear this story and that it had never really been covered in any great depth. Now, luckily for Her Majesty, Lewis didn't have much experience with shooting. He didn't have a powerful enough weapon to actually make the distance. And he didn't even really have a direct line of sight at her. But he gave it a go anyway, and he shot into the general direction, and it didn't come anywhere near Her Majesty. She was totally fine. But onlookers heard the sound, and the question was, what was the source of that sound? Now, an assassination attempt on the Queen is an extremely embarrassing failure for the police, no matter how inept the attempt was. There had just been an attempt, there had just been an assassination attempt on President Reagan, and the police had failed to do any of the security work that you would expect to protect a visiting sovereign. And so the Dunedin police decided to cover it up. They told the media that the noise had been caused by a sign falling down. Um, and if it wasn't a sign falling down, then it was probably firecrackers, right? So a very consistent and believable message here. Either way, they charged Lewis with a uh, public possession of a firearm and public discharging of a firearm. But this cover backfired because in 1997, when Her Majesty came back and Lewis was looking forward to her visit, there was nothing that they could do to keep him out of jail, to keep, uh, to keep him in jail rather, to keep him away from the Queen. So they sent him on a fabulous 10-day all-expenses-paid vacation to the Great Barrier Island. Of course, eventually this all comes out. And the absurdity of their actions becomes the actual story here. And the police in Dunedin could have just been open about what had happened, but they decided their egos and positions of authority were more important than actually protecting the queen or her subjects. In Jesus' kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. 
And Jesus has chosen to have a kingdom where you are an important and valued member. Not just the leaders. Not just the the religious elite. Yes, we need leaders and we need regular people to step up and lead. We're all part of the kingdom and Jesus chose to advance his kingdom through the witness of ordinary, regular people, not just through the top people. Last time I was here, I shared a little bit from a research group called McCrindle Research, and it's actually relevant again, so I'm going to refresh your memory on this. We'll go to the next, there we go. So this is a breakdown of the top attractors and repellents to religion and spirituality. Now, there's a lot there, so we'll just go to the next slide. I've just focused in on a couple. And you'll see the top ones there. The thing that attracts people most to religion and spirituality is seeing people who live out a genuine faith, as well as stories or testimonies from people who have changed through their faith. That's you. People are most attracted to religious, to religion and spirituality by you. And what's the bottom one? The least attractive, the most repellent thing? Hearing from public figures and celebrities who are examples of the faith. That's the last thing that they want to hear about. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's not true of every person in every situation. There are plenty of people who have come to the faith by hearing um, from public Christians. I came back to church as a young adult after going to a Franklin Graham concert. But in general, on average, people want to hear from you. People want to know your stories. But you might be asking, well, if I do share the good news, how how do I know that I can do it? How do I know that I have the the, um, intelligence to do it or the authority to do it? How do I know that I can do it right. Well, let's go to the end of the chapter. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. When was that given to him? When was he given that? Well, maybe it was at his resurrection, at his great victory. By taking up his life again and conquering death, Jesus has demonstrated his mastery and authority over heaven and earth, life and death. And when we look back at the tomb that Mary witnessed, that's where Jesus is drawing his authority from, the empty tomb, he's risen, he's defeated death. Death was the fate of us all, and so Jesus has authority over heaven and earth which includes all of us, because that was our fate. 
Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He's saying, these are my people. He's paid the price for these people. He died and rose again and had victory over death so that they could be forgiven. And now he wants them for himself. He's established authority over them, over you, over your family, over your friends and your colleagues. And so when Mary goes to the brothers and to tell them about the resurrection, she's not doing that on her own authority. She's not doing that because she's smart enough, because she understands enough, because she is good enough for this. But she's going with the authority of the one who has authority over life and death, heaven and earth. Because she's commissioned. She's commissioned for this work. A commissioned officer acts with the authority of the military. A public work which is commissioned is done with the authority of the government. It's not the authority of the individual, and this is no different. And the wider Great Commission comes from the authority of Jesus' resurrection. When you're sharing the news, like Mary, of Jesus' resurrection, you're talking about something that Jesus has done not something that stands or falls by you or your authority. You're acting with the authority of the one who rose from the tomb. And if you're saved by the empty tomb, you are empowered by the empty tomb. Now, just in case my first two illustrations came over that I was too sort of anti-authoritarian, too anti-leadership, um, anti-medical science, I'll balance it out with my third illustration where we can think about a vaccination. Vaccination. Think about sharing the good news of the vaccination. Maybe COVID-19, maybe another disease. There's been a terrible, terrible scourge. There's been a lot of lives lost, but it's been overcome. There is now a way to prevent it. Now, if you're a doctor or a nurse, it is your job to bring the good news of this prevention to the people. Now, you very likely had zero to do with the development of this. And in fact, it's not dependent on your qualifications. It's not dependent on your intelligence. It's not dependent on anything about you. The vaccination is going to work whether or not you are a good, uh, a, a, a good explainer of the vaccination, a good example. The vaccine has already proven victory over the death that the disease can deal, and the doctors and nurses are commissioned to deliver this good news to any who will accept it. Now, this is a human-made product that is dealing with temporary, uh, with a temporary death, not the ultimate death. And so something that is flawed and imperfect like a vaccine that will never work 100%, how much more the good news of a permanent victory over all death, over all sickness, over all decay, how much more the good news of Jesus Christ of victory over the tomb. So when you share, when you share the good news, 
remember that, that you're just a doctor or a nurse in this situation. You didn't develop the good news, you didn't create it, and it's actually true whether or not the person that you're talking to believes it. It's not your character on the line, it's not your authority, it's Jesus' victory and his authority in your commission. Now, I'll just close with a really great example of all of this in practice. I'll just go back one, sorry. A really great example of all of this in practice, I've been meeting up with a guy called Robert. And he has recently come to faith and we've been reading the word one-to-one together. And recently, he sent me a message and he said, do you have any resources that I can pass on to my friend who's interested in Christianity? And he followed up by saying, I'm well aware of the irony that God would use the person with the weakest possible faith to be sharing his good news with other people. So if my friend Robert can do it, why not give it a go? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the good news. Thank you that it is such good news to anyone who will hear it. Lord, we pray for wisdom as we think about our friends, colleagues, family who don't know you. Uh, We pray for the words from the Holy Spirit so that when we talk to these people, might not be our own authority, but it might be the truth that you're speaking through us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.